about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks to the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Hi friends, my name is Jill. Uh, We're going to keep reading. Um, So if you turn to page 974 in the Pew Bibles, or if you've got the large print, it's 1,715. Uh, So this is Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel brought brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man... And he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. 
Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded, dis he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and ghostskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hello again, friends. Keep that open in front of you. As I said, this is our second week, second last week in the Hebrews series. And we've kind of reached the summit of the book in last week's chapter. All through the book, we've been talking to these Hebrews who are considering heading back to Judaism, back to the sacrificial system, back to the law, back to Moses, back to the life they used to know before they trusted Jesus. And all the way through, we've had this picture of how Jesus is a greater high priest of a better covenant with a better offering and a better cleansing and a better salvation because of all he has done for us in offering himself through the eternal spirit to the Father. And we get to this part of the book and move forward and we start to grab hold of what to do with it all. And as you might have got from the repetition of that chapter, what you do with it is faith, the life of faith. But before we get started on that, I think it's worth considering the fact that really for us, the Judaic rituals of blood cleansing are not really a temptation that we're looking to grab hold of. Uh, you know, entering an abattoir, not really kind of what we're into. Uh, nor is anyone really in danger of maybe converting to Islam this evening, or maybe Buddhism, maybe, or some New Age spirituality. But I think for us, a different type of temptation, a different type of faith is actually on offer. And I think you see this come uh, about through a few of the things that have happened recently where big Christian leaders have renounced their faith, sadly and tragically. I don't want to make light of that uh, on Instagram. Here's Marty Sampson, who he's authored some of the songs we sing, uh, who recently came out and talked about losing his faith. Uh, it's good to talk about doubt and faith and all those kind of things. If you're in that position this evening, come talk to us, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. But there's something in what he said in his announcement that really struck me as a thing we're tempted by. Here's what he says. It's not all of it, but some of it. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. And it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth. Not that I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing truth of every religion. All I know is what's true for me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall, the sun will come up tomorrow. There's something really interesting in the back half of what he says here. Do you see how he labels a whole bunch of things that would come out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus. Forgiveness, generosity, doing good. What you see in Marty is what I want to call the temptation to be Jesus-y without Jesus. To do the things of the Christian faith, the ethics of the Christian faith, the great causes of the Christian faith, but without the Lord Jesus himself. If there was one temptation before us, and before inner West Christians, I think, all up, 
it's a temptation and even the thought that maybe if I was Jesus-y and left Jesus and the church behind, I'd actually do a better job of it even. I just wanted to put that out there this evening. I've been thinking and praying about it all through this series as the thing that I'm praying for you as your pastor. That you trust what has happened in the Lord Jesus rather than settling for being Jesus-y. Now, let's keep that in front of us as we walk through this chapter. And just as it exhorts us to faith, I think that's what is exhorting us away from that and toward the Lord Jesus. So let's follow this through. And I want to tell you four things from this passage about a faith that perseveres. Four things. First one is this. Friends, faith is just trusting God's promises. Faith is just trusting God's promises. I wonder when you read the, the, the beginning of this chapter whether you like that definition of faith. I kind of don't, to be really honest. Uh, mainly because I read it, and when it says confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see, I see too much the definition of faith on the surface that an atheist would throw back at me. There you are, Matt, going again about blind faith in things you can't see and things that don't have basis or evidence or facts behind them. It feels like that sort of definition of faith. But I think when you look a bit more closely, it doesn't really. You need a bit of a run-up, I think, to this passage. You go back to 10 verse 36. That's where the language of faith really draws into the book of Hebrews, I think. And he says on the back of an exhortation and a warning, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Right? That's what's on view here. Receiving God's promises. For, quoting Habakkuk 2, we just read it, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The promises of God are coming, and therefore what? My righteous one will live by faith. And so faith then is not blind confidence contrary to facts. Faith is confidence that the God who makes his promises will keep them. Faith is trusting God's promises. That's why it uses the language of hoped for. Faith is confidence in what is hoped for in the promises of God and assurance that those promises will come even when you can't see them happening in the present. That's actually the language of Hebrews chapter 2 where it says, we do not see Jesus reigning at present. We do not see him, but yet he will come and be the heir of all things, the center of all things. He is the great high priest, God's final word. So faith is confidence in God's promises. And that changes the way you think about faith, I think. So, for example, if I say to you, I promise to give you a Ferrari by close of business tomorrow, right? If I make that promise to you, the evidence you're looking for is twofold. One, whether my bank account is big enough or I'm good enough at stealing cars. And second, if I'm a reliable enough to come through with my promise and actually reliably give it to you. Am I capable of fulfilling the promise and will I, am I actually good enough to fulfill it? The kind of evidence we're looking for is, is God a promise keeper? When he promises and enacts things in Jesus to me, will he actually come through or not? 
And what we've seen all through the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest over the house of God. Unlike all the Old Testament heroes we're about to speak of, we have seen God's promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. We have every confidence that the future promises of God will come. And so, friend, when you're feeling like you're not feeling it in your faith, when you kind of, we kind of get into this subjective thing about faith, where I'm not feeling it, I'm feeling low, I'm not sensing God, that, that's the wrong question. The question of faith is not, am I feeling it? The question is, is God good enough to keep his promises? Fuel that flame and you'll fuel your faith. Faith is just trusting God's promises. But then what he moves on to through the rest of the chapter is a demonstration of the great heroes of the Old Testament and how they lived a life trusting God's promises. And it says in verse 2 that they were commended for this, that God loved this about them. And one of the, we're gonna, I can't look at all these characters. I read a, a part of a book this week where someone got to preach on every single character one sermon at a time. I'm like, come on. I don't have time for this. So two characters in particular, Abraham and Moses, we're going to focus on. And then the, the, the crazy bit at the end. Uh, and the second thing we learn about faith in the life of Abraham is that faith remembers where its home is. Faith remembers where its home is. Now, Abraham, from chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, God comes to him, says, going to make you a great nation, going to make you really famous, going to bless you, going to give you a land. Get up, leave your hometown, leave everything you know, and I'm, you're going to go to this place. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but I'll tell you when you get there, which is crazy. As it says in verse 8, Abraham, when called to go to the place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham up and leaves his homeland and wanders off after the promises of God. And it says then that he becomes a stranger, verse 9, in a foreign country, lived in tents along with his ancestors. He becomes this nomad, wandering in the promised land even, but not settling there. It speaks of Sarah, his wife, and how she couldn't bear children, but then trusted eventually despite the odds, and God came through. But then goes on in verse 13 and says how both of them, they lived and they died without really receiving the thing that they were promised. They lived as nomads their whole life. They did not receive what they promised, verse 13. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, looking for a home, is the way I want to say that. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have just gone back. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What the writer is saying is in the life of Abraham, what you see is the, the promises of God didn't come to him. 
He was waiting for something better. In fact, the writer is saying that he, he wasn't even wait, waiting to set up shop in the promised land. He was waiting for something even better to come from God. A city, verse 10, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. See, Abraham's faith, his trust in God's promise, made him live a life longing and hoping to go to his home, which was the place that God had prepared for him, not anything in his present existence. And so he lived like a stranger his whole life. This city was his real home. Now, this is very important, and I think it's even more important for us in Sydney to understand this and grasp this about faith and faith remembering where its home is. uh, This was driven home to me by uh, a young woman who I met who works at Google. Uh, She'd come out, uh, and uh, I had a chat to her about faith and work stuff, and she said, "Uh, I'm trying to make sense of Sydney. Uh, You know, uh, Every city I go to when I work in, I try and work out the spiritual baseline of the place. And uh, I live in Hollywood, and Hollywood is about image. What's your Instagram? What do you look like? What are you doing? How do you appear? Who are you honored by? I've just come from Silicon Valley, and in Silicon Valley, it's all about achievement. How much funding do you have? How many users do you have on your app? I said to her, well, you've been in Sydney a few months. What do you think the spiritual baseline of Sydney is. And she said, complacency. This city is too beautiful. It's too wealthy. It's too warm. It's too nice here. It's too hard to believe that you need God and that there could be something better coming. I think she nailed it. And, you know, to, to be honest, like to, to really believe that about Sydney, you have to kind of close your eyes to our gambling addiction and the way we treat women and our care of the vulnerable and the wider chaos of the nations around us. But we do very much feel like we've arrived. But, friends, the life of faith longs for the better country longs for the time and the place when God's promises are finally fulfilled and has the insight to know that where God answers his promises, that will be the best place. And you see, when that drops in your heart, you start treating the life you have now different. You're more a stranger here. You're more a pilgrim here. Your identity isn't as caught up in the, the things you have, in the materialism you seek, in the jobs you have, in, in, in just being here in this beautiful place, but you long for the better beautiful place. When you're confident that God will come through on his promises, you remember that your home is actually there in his city, his physical place to come for the people of God, where his promises are fulfilled. That's the second thing. Faith remembers where its home is. But the third thing on the back of those two, when we know and confident in God's promises coming and we realize our home is in the future and not here and now in this city, in this place, in this beautiful city, the, the third thing that happens is then faith begins to willingly bear costs. Faith willingly bears costs. 
You see this in the life of Moses. I love how uh, the life of Moses is described here in verse 24 and following because uh, it's really, it reads really different in Exodus, same as Abraham's story. Moses was the boy who was put in the river so that he wouldn't die and was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in royalty. He's Prince William, right? He's kind of in the royal family, in the house. And, you know, he could have led a really good life. He could have played Xbox all the time, could have got a, a pyramid made for him maybe, I don't know, played with lots of cats. They liked cats. You know, he could have had a stellar, wealthy, honorable, magnificent life as part of Pharaoh's family. There's just a small factor that his entire nation was enslaved around him and brutally treated. And it says in verse 24, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. This is an astounding, confronting thought, I think. All the treasure and honor in Egypt was his. And yet he threw in his lot with his nation, mistreated though they were and misguided though he was at first. And he considered disgrace, humiliation, lack of honor to be what of greater value than anything he could have had without God. To suffer humiliation for God's sake was more valuable. It's a, it's a crazy thought to think that if I lose something for Jesus, it's, it's more valuable to me than, ha, than a, to have succeeded and had it. That if you gave me all the accolades and treasures of this city, being humiliated for Jesus' sake would be more valuable? What? It says it was true for him because he was looking ahead to his reward. Because suffering now for the sake of Jesus and then receiving his promises was better than receiving all of the treasures of now. And so he willingly bore the cost. Now this gets dialed up in 32 and following, where, he, where the, the writer says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about all the other crazy people in the Old Testament, like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth. Japheth wasn't a particularly good guy, can I mention? Uh, and David and Samuel and the prophets. You know, these guys conquered kingdoms, they gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the sword, became awesome in battle, raised the dead. Like, sign me up, right? Sign me up for shutting lions' mouths and quenching fiery darts and getting awesome in battle. Others were tortured, jeered, flogged, chained, imprisoned stoned, sawed into, allegedly, the prophet Isaiah. Killed. They went around in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecu persecuted, and mistreated. Apparently, the lot of God's people will often be remarkable cost. That the life trusting and waiting for the city to come will lead often to missing out on the city you're in. 
of losing the things that are most valuable to you, of not having your desires fulfilled, of not achieving the things you wanted to in your life, of willingly not choosing to achieve the things of your life and instead trust God's promises. I find this list very confronting. Very confronting. Because if I'm really honest, I don't want, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to be jeered and tortured and imprisoned for my faith. And, and if I'm really, really honest, I could say that I, I can see very easily how I could live the rest of my life very wealthy, very comfortable, taking no risks, and losing nothing, and yet being a pastor in the church of God, and not once having to take up my cross and follow. I find this terrifying. And yet what is described of people who lose things? Verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. You know, the people of Isaiah's time considered him not worthy of life, and so they killed him. But from God's perspective, he was not worthy to stay because he belonged with him in his presence with great honor. Friends, one of the reasons why we prefer to be Jesus-y is because it doesn't cost us anything. But to take up your cross and follow, and for things to hurt, and for things to go wrong, is according to our Lord Jesus, and according to the writer of the Hebrews, a great treasure and honor. And it's part and parcel of the life of faith. Faith willingly bears cost. But the fourth thing is this. And it really, to be honest, is the most important thing in the whole of this section. And it's that faith, oh, it looks to its pioneer and perfecter. Friend, if you're here today thinking, oh, I don't know how to live as a stranger in my city. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't even long for the city to come. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to bear cost. I don't, I'm not even sure of God's promises today. Friend, the good news is, is that... <laughs> All the characters in this list failed too. At different points and in different ways and in different sins and in different doubts. But our Lord Jesus is called in 12 verse 2, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the one who gives you faith. He is the one who opened the way for your faith through his death and resurrection. He is the one who will perfect your faith and lead you to glory. When your eyes are on him, and not the cost, and not the pressure, and not the complexity, you find a way to trust his promises despite everything. I love these last few verses because it's, it's a picture of a stadium. These, these, these Old Testament characters are a crowd of witnesses cheering, cheering, and, and we're there to, to take off everything that hinders. Someone at Coast Church says sometimes that meant you got nude in the stadium to run, right? We're not going to think about that this evening. And you get ready and you run your race. I love this because uh, one of my genetic endowments of the Aroni family is to be very fast 
over short distances for a few years as a teenager. <laughs> my sister was a state champion, and my, my dad has all these trophies, and my mom was a great hurdler, and I was a very reliable relay reserve. <laughs> and so I remember this one time I was at a carnival, and I'd run 100 and a 200, and I was about to run a relay, and my mom said, you've got to run the 400 and preferably the 800. And I'm like, <laughs> no way. And so she uh, offered me a straight cash bribe to run the 400, which I declined. Um, because for me, running was about euphoria. It was about running so fast you felt like you could fly and take off the ground. And the thought of a 400 meters where you had to check yourself, you can't physically sprint, you have to actually train hard, you have to actually think about what you're doing and have strategy and thought was just, I, don't, I wasn't interested in a race like that. You know, when we get to the end of this chapter, what the author says to us is we are to run the race with perseverance that is marked out before us. Because the life of being a stranger and bearing cross, uh, bearing cost, waiting for God's promises, is much more like a marathon than your daily sprint to the bus in the morning. It requires thoughtfulness. What is hindering your faith? What sin is entangling you? What decisions are you making today that will hamper your faith in 10 years' time? 20 years' time? What ways do you need to sow into community today and make decisions about your career today? Because you know you need to run with perseverance a race of faith until your dying day. There is no such thing as a spiritual sprint. And yet the only secret to running this race is to realize that there is one who has won it for you. Fix your eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy that Jesus had? that meant that he endured the cross, scorned its shame. What, who, what, what is the joy? Friend, it was you. You were the joy. We were the joy for which Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. That he might win a place for us in his city, though we should be shut out from it under his wrath. Friends, when you consider the one who for the joy set before him of you endured the cross, scorning its shame, when your eyes are on him, your heart gets less weary. And you find a way to trust his promises. And you find a way to bear cost. And your heart starts to long for his city. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus who has run the race that we never could, who has borne the wrath we never could, who has endured shame for our sake. Father, we pray by your spirit this evening that you would light up our hearts with the promises that you give us in your Son, that we would feel sure that what you have promised us will come
It is written in the blood of your Son. And so enable us to trust Jesus, to keep our eyes on him, and to run our race. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.